Good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brother Grant and Diana, of course, for leading us in worship and prayer. You know, the great Puritan Thomas Watson, he lamented that Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. And that is so true for us all at points in our lives. Yet Scripture tells us that we may come boldly to the throne of grace for all that concerns us. We may come into His presence. That's what the Christian life is. It is a life spent in the presence of God. It is living with an awareness that He is present. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 46 says He is very present. Yet functionally, we sometimes live so differently, don't we? How, how would we live if Jesus were visible to us? If we could see Him walk next to us everywhere He went, if He was sitting in the front pew this morning, if He sat right next to you at your desk at work, or if He stood with your hand on your shoulder as you watch your TV or boot up that computer, would we live differently? Would we change what we watched or how we spoke? The Christian life is one spent in the presence of God. A continual awareness, boldly coming and living before the throne of grace. And yes, He has promised us that He'll not leave or forsake us. That He's with us always, even to the ends of the earth. All of those promises are ours. They're all ours. Yet contained in those promises of life, lived in the presence of our God, that gives us so great of comfort. It gives us great comfort, yes, but it afflicts us also in one stroke, doesn't it? That Jesus would walk with you every moment of your day as you live in his presence. It's the greatest comfort and the greatest conviction that we can have. So live in his presence this week. Be aware, mindful, ever conscious of the continuous presence of your Savior in all that you do, in all that you say, in all that you watch. Let us live a life that is pleasing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we looked at a rare explanation of a parable given by Jesus, the parable of the soils. We're in the midst of a very rare occurrence, being one of only two major teaching sections in the Gospel of Mark. Recall that Mark is a gospel that shows us who our Savior is, who our suffering servant is, more by what he does rather than by what he says. So this is a rare and special place. It's a place for us to slow down and take great care to understand what we're being taught, what we're being shown. After watching the crowds of tens of thousands throng Jesus and the disciples and true followers of Christ, they're not understanding why at this point. Why, Jesus, are we not planning a coronation service for you in Jerusalem? After all, he's performed numerous miracles, hasn't he? He's sent the demons fleeing. He's checking all of the messianic boxes. So why aren't the armies lined up behind Messiah to restore Israel and clobber the Romans? Nothing like that is happening. Prompting the question of the man in Luke 13, he's asking, Lord, are there only a few who are being saved? Isn't a person just a person? If five of us witness you heal a blind man, won't five of us believe? If a hundred of us witness a leper's skin be restored in front of our eyes, will not a hundred follow you? My heart burned within me as you spoke of the kingdom of God. Didn't everybody's? Jesus says no. And here's why. Let me tell you a tale of four soils. 
Here's why so few will be saved. Here's why so few will hear you when I send you out as sheep among wolves. The way is narrow. There's one soil that will produce fruit. All others will bear no fruit. Now, one might be tempted to despair at these odds. But know this, saints, the way is indeed narrow. But take heart. That narrow gate is wide enough for the worst sinner to pass through. Plenty wide enough. We began to broach the subject of parables over the last two weeks. What are they? Why did Jesus use them? What the purpose is? And we use the analogy of the stained glass window. Right? That to those standing on the outside, the stained glass window is dusty, it's dirty, it's unremarkable. But to those who are on the inside, it's brilliant and it's bright. To many listening to the parable of the soils, Jesus was talking about agriculture for some reason. Soils! To others, there was something much more. Though even then, it was not completely clear to them. So Jesus does something remarkable again for us last week. He takes these inner circle... And he explains the parable. And to those who are being saved, a parable is meant to reveal and to teach, not to conceal and to condemn. To many who would hear the parable of the soils, it was condemnation, though. If you cannot understand this one, Jesus says, you cannot understand any of them. The parable of the soil was foundational. It's packed with truths that we were really only able to cover from 35,000 feet. We would be in Mark for five years if we mind all that were in the parable of the soils. But what we have over the next few weeks through verse 34, if you look ahead, can rightly be called an extension of sorts of the parable of soils. These, these are called minor parables or maybe proverbial stories or concepts. They're short, pithy examples. They're basically meant to convey simple truths about not only the responsibility of those who have that good soil, of those who have been given the good soil and the truths of the kingdom of God that's at work in their very lives. Of course, this is all caveated again with the now well-known saying in our text, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're going to see that phrase again today. We talked last week about what that means. What are we saying? What is Jesus commanding when he says that? So again, our next two weeks are well viewed as an extension of and an elaboration of the parable of the soils that Jesus gave for reasons we'll discuss here in due course. This is a rich text. So with that, let's jump in. Mark 4, 21 through 25. Mark 4, 21 through 25. And he was saying to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, beware what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given to you. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Let's pray. Lord, we have much to see here, much to be obedient to here. Lord, the hearing is not always hard for us. It is the obedience that must follow. And as always, as you have commanded us to, we ask for ears to hear. We ask that your Holy Spirit do its sanctifying and purifying work through the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, many of you who are familiar with the geography of Israel know that there's three main water features in the land. You have the River Jordan, the river that feeds two main other bodies of water that could not be more different than one another. The River Jordan first feeds the Sea of Galilee, which is teeming with fish. It's fresh and it's alive. And the other body of water the River Jordan feeds is the Dead Sea. Nothing lives there. It's dead. It's stagnant. No life can survive in its ecosystem. Now, both of these bodies of water are fed by the same Jordan River. It flows into them both equally. Yet isn't it interesting that one lives, one can support life, it's vibrant, and one is dead. One answer to it. One answer, very simply. One has an outlet. One does not. The Sea of Galilee moves the water through. It passes along what it has received. At the Dead Sea, the water arrives only to be stagnated. It has no outlet. It's not passed on. So it dies. There are certain things in life that if they're not passed on, they die. Certain things whose power, whose efficacy are actually retained by giving them away. Giving away the very thing you seek to possess. Jesus alludes to this principle when he says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. So it is with the Sea of Galilee. It's fresh and it's clean and it's alive because it gives away what it has been given. The water that flows in flows out. Freely it is received, freely it gives. At the Dead Sea, the River Jordan pours in, only to be hoarded to itself. It is not let out, and so the pure water dies. Same source, same water, one lives, one dies. One passes it on, one hoards it. Our first proverbial saying in our text this morning, Jesus is saying exactly this. But what's prompted Jesus to share this? Where's this coming from? We need to understand this if we're going to grasp the meaning of what we're going to read today in fullness. I'm going to throw a strange word out for you today. A little bit of a strange word. Esoteric. Esoteric. I'm going to step out on a limb and say most folks would not know the meaning of this without looking it up. Don't worry, you're in good company on that. This is a unique word. Well, the dictionary defines esoteric as confined to and understandable by only an enlightened inner circle. Such an interesting word, isn't it? And a word that is, in fact, today the driving force of our text. You see, prior to the parable of the soils, Jesus spoke very plainly, didn't he? He'd not really spoken in parables a lot up to this point. He spoke very simply saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But now that all the countryside had had the opportunity to see and hear Jesus extensively, some even attributing his works to Satan, it was time to shift gears and to change methods, meaning a move to parables. But Jesus' sudden change in his speaking and in his teaching method, it presents a few problems or at best a few questions for the disciples. Jesus has now given this parable. And not only are the disciples struggling to understand it, but the disciples witness that a great many people did not understand it. And yet what happens? Jesus pulls them to one side. What does he do? He explains it just to them. Well, the danger here is that the disciples begin thinking that the teachings of the master are somehow some kind of inner circle secret. Nobody else got it. Yet we're taken to the side and we're given the inside scoop. 
Does this mean that the teaching of Jesus is dualistic? Is the master telling us that we're in some sort of double system here? Is this a secret knowledge? Are we in an esoteric system here? Is this a message only to the inner and the enlightened only? And second question, because Jesus is now speaking in parables, we're his disciples. Does that mean we are now supposed to speak in parables? Are we supposed to go out there and conceal the matters of the gospel? Are we supposed to speak cryptically like this? This is almost a Gnostic feel, right? The word Gnostics, it comes from the word Gnosis, where we get the word knowledge from, right? They were esoteric. They believed that they possessed special or secret knowledge that no one else had. It was a closed circuit cult, confined to and understandable by only the enlightened inner circle. Is that what Jesus is introducing it here? Is this how we're supposed to be? Is this how we're supposed to go out and teach? Is our faith and message one that's cryptic? That's a secret set of knowledge that only the inner circle can grasp. No, no. But the disciples see the master speaking this way. So they begin reasoning that maybe this is the way it's done. Maybe this is what the kingdom of God, our faith, is all about. Jesus is going to head this thought process off at the pass. We are not Gnostics. We do not possess a secret knowledge. We are called to broadcast our message from the rooftop. We are to take the lamp and put it on a stand for all to see. That's the point of where we're going today. That's the meaning. That's the reason for Jesus giving this proverbial saying. The disciples are reasoning, should we be cryptic? Like you seem to be. Jesus is saying, no, go shout it from the rooftop. You've been given a great privilege of having this knowledge. Now you have a responsibility to go proclaim the gospel. That's the point. Jesus is about to give us such an illustration, so we won't ruin it by making it complicated. Let your little light shine. Let your little light shine. So with that, let's look to our first verse. Mark 4, verse 21. Mark 4, verse 21. And he was saying to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be put on a lampstand? A lot to see here. Well, we already covered who Jesus is talking to, the disciples. Yet in the first part of Jesus' words, we run into a major translation problem, unfortunately. Most translations here, if you look in your Bible on your lap there, says is a lamp. You see that? Is a lamp. Sadly, this misses what's known as the definite article. Pastor, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. Well, I used this example with another congregant a few days ago in prayer meeting. The word a, as in a lamp, is an indefinite article. But the Greek has a definite article in Mark, meaning the. Why does that matter? Well, the example I gave was I'm going down to buy a car. And if I told you I'm going down to buy a car, you'd say, great, Pastor, okay. Now, what if I told you I'm going down to the dealership and I'm going to buy the car? Different, different meaning, doesn't it? Takes on a whole different spectrum. This is not a car. This is the car. In this case, this is not a lamp that we're talking about. This is the lamp. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because the lamp is the subject of the sentence. I'm not taking you back to grammar school. You're staring at a claim of divinity here. We don't want to miss that. We dare not miss that. Jesus is talking about the lamp. I'm tempted to ask you what the lamp is, but the better question is, who is the lamp? 
Who is the lamp? Who is the light of the world? Who is the lamp? R.C. Sproul puts his finger on this saying, quote, I did not come here to be concealed forever. I came here as a lamp that is to be set on a lampstand so that the light that I bring may burst forth and manifest itself clearly to all who dwell in darkness. I did not come to be covered with a basket or hidden under a bed. I came to shine forth, end quote. So when we see here, is a lamp brought, read Jesus saying, am I brought? Am I brought into this world to be concealed? Would you put my life, my divinity, my message under a basket or a bed? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John calls Jesus the light shining in the darkness. Let's not miss this or we're going to gloss over what Mark shows Jesus saying. Now, what are these lamps in the analogy? What are they? Well, much like our slide pictures here done by our wonderful Mr. Grant, they're clay pottery, sometimes terracotta, and they would have a handle on the end and inside you'd have a few tablespoons worth of oil and the wick would be drenched in that oil and it would remain lit as long as you had oil. And what are done with these lamps? Verse 21 shows us two things. One, where we're supposed to put the lamp. And two, two places where we don't put the lamp. So Jesus poses this as a rhetorical question, doesn't he? Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or a bed? Well, the implied answer, of course, is no, right? But let's look at these two. The first is the lamp is not to be put under a basket. Now, there are some who assign specific meaning to the basket in the bed. Some equate the basket with business or commercialism, money-making. You use a basket to collect. These things crowd out and they drown out the light. They may also equate the bed in this verse with pleasure or ease or worldly comfort that can block the light in our lives. Well, the question we need to ask ourselves is, did Jesus have this in mind when he gave the example of the basket and the bed? Short answer, I don't know. I don't know. So I can't teach that the parallel of the basket and the bed means these different things as the go as gospel because I really don't know. But it is possible. So I want to put it out there for your consideration. So remember that we're captive to the text, right? We're captive to the text as much as we would love to run with a great analogy here that would preach very well. We're handcuffed by the text. So what we can say definitively, though, here, what we can say definitively is that Jesus says there are those who hide the light that is within them. They cover their gifts. They run from their calling. They possess the most beautiful lamp. They turn it on. They observe the light and the majesty of it as, it as its rays dance around the room and they proceed to throw a blanket over it. Why? That seems illogical, doesn't it? Remember what we said a few weeks ago. Sin is never logical. It's never logical. Sin tells you that something is in your best interest, but that's a lie. Behind every sin is a lie. Behind every sin is a perverted logic. Logic is God's. He created it as a God of order. Sin perverts that order. It's illogical. Why would you cover up that beautiful lamp, that warm glow of light? Well, we need to see the warning here in Jesus' words. Burying your light, burying that inner light that's been put in you, as in the person and work of Jesus Christ is not just missed opportunities in this life to share the gospel. To cover this light is sin. It's being ashamed of your father in heaven. It's fear. Which a student in here remembers the number one command in all of scripture. 
Do not fear. Do not fear. What is your what is your fear causing us to flee? To the basket or to the bed. Many times it's fear of man, is it not? It's fear of man. And the root cause of the fear of man is that you're actually a man pleaser. Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why do we put it under the basket or in the bed? Most of the time, we're afraid. Or we're ashamed. Sometimes it can even be slothfulness. But when we consider this fear, tell me, what can man really do to you? What can he really do to you? In a very near timeline in Luke 12, Jesus tells us who we are to fear. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And afterwards, they have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I can't help but think Jesus would not have been hired by very many churches today. Well, back to our rhetorical question. And he was saying to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? We see two things that we don't do with a lamp. That's illogical to do with the lamp. That deprives all around of the warmth and the light of that lamp. The beloved bishop, J.C. Riles, he writes, quote, We shall all have to give account for our use of knowledge one day. The books of God and the day of judgment will show what we have done. If we have buried our talent in the earth, if we have been content with a lazy, idle, do-nothing Christianity, and care nothing about what happened to others so long as we went to heaven ourselves. End quote. Come to think of it, I don't think J.C. Ryle would have been hired by very many churches today either. All right, what then are we to do? What do we do with this lamp? It is not to be put. Is it not to be put on a lampstand? Is it not to shine? Is it not to be raised up and put on display? Is he not to be raised up and put on display? Doing the most good, shining the brightest where it will illuminate every corner, showing the dirt and the dust that we might clean it out. Men love the darkness. They hate the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. The light exposes not just the wickedness of the world, but the recess of our own heart that we think lie dormant in the dark. The lamp goes on the lampstand. No corner is safe when we lift up the lamp. Sin cannot abide. It flees. We're surrounded by those in spiritual darkness. Our world is enveloped in darkness. And yet there are those who would close their mouth in fear or shame. We would cover the light. We would take the water from the River Jordan that's freely flowing into our lives and we stop it up. We close our mouths, stagnating the message in our own heart by not giving it away. God forbid. This is a message that is meant to be given away. A stagnant gospel message will bear no fruit. It cannot live there. But lest we think we be under the impression that we possess the power or the ability to stop the spread of the gospel by our indifference or by our silence, that's not so. God's will will be accomplished in the earth. We have a newsflash. He does not need us. Our labor in saving souls is like a father with a child who wants to help him fix the toilet or help dad with the project. We have lots of those. 
We could actually do it much better and much faster on our own, couldn't we? We don't actually need their help. But we take great joy in them doing it with us, in partnering with us, in wanting to be with us, in loving to do what we love to do. We value the relationship, being with them. God does not need us in the pursuit of his elect. His objective is never thwarted by our disobedience. Charles Spurgeon captured this truth when he said, quote, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or a bed? If it were put under a bed, it would set the bed on fire. And so, if you have true grace in your heart, there is nothing that can smother its light. The fire and the light together will force their way out. End quote. Keep in mind, we're not extinguishing this light. Nothing can extinguish this light, but we are covering it. We are hiding it in fear or in apathy. Go ahead and put the flame of the gospel under the bed. It's just going to set the bed on fire. We will not thwart the move of God. His calling cannot be refused. His grace overwhelms any objection from the human heart. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. We will not thwart the light by our disobedience. But it should be our joy. It should be our joy to share about the one who has saved us from death and hell. If we've been transformed by his grace, how could we not tell others? If a man was starving and you knew where a feast could be found, would you not tell him? It should be the default position of any born-again believer to desire to bring others to Christ. In fact, Spurgeon said, if you have no desire to see others saved, you're not saved yourself. Rest assured of that. I know that some are what might be called gifted in evangelism. I also suspect that the thought of speaking to someone, perhaps even a stranger about matters of eternity, struck fear into the hearts of some right now. And yes, some are gifted in Serena, but we are all called to be propagators of the gospel. If you've fallen into a rut in this area of your life, what is the answer? What is the key to overcoming this fear? Simple, one word. Love. Love. Perfect love casts out fear. You have to love them enough to share. 99% of the fear is in your own mind. The moment you take that first step, the rest will flow like the River Jordan. Trust me, it will. You have to love that person enough. Love is the key to conquering fear in this area. You possess the words of eternal life. God has placed this treasure of the gospel in this dirty clay pot, in this earthen vessel. Let the water flow through you like the Sea of Galilee. God's revelation is not a possession to be guarded from others. It's to be cast like the seed, liberally, onto all soil types. Jesus emphasizes this point again in verse 22. Verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they did what? They went into hiding. Sin desires to separate from anything that would expose it. We want to be hidden. Ever been in a bar? I'm sure nobody in here has. This is for the people online, don't worry. Is it light or is it dark? We want to be hidden. Walk into the bar and turn on all the lights full blast. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 22. 
Jesus is going to walk into the depraved dive bar of humanity and he's going to turn on the floodlights. His arrival into redemptive history has shined a light right into the eyes of humanity. But the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. How popular is that person that turns on that light? Not very. You'll probably get a bar glass thrown at your head. The light is a disruptor. It removes the comfort that anonymity brings. There truly are no secrets. You may think you have a secret, but you don't. All that is concealed will be revealed, like it were shouted from a rooftop. Not only are there no secrets, but nobody gets away with anything. I saw a statistic one time of the number of murders that go unsolved every year in the U.S. That means there are thousands of people living right now who think they got away with it. Nothing is hidden. All will be revealed. This speaks on many levels. Here, Jesus is speaking to the spread of the gospel. Jesus is speaking to the cryptic nature of his speech, right? That it was and is necessary because of hardness of hearts. But it's not going to stay that way. And you're not going to conceal this message from anyone. We're not esoteric, right? We're not esoteric. Our knowledge is not secret. Nothing is secret. The gospel message is not secret. Our own secrets are not secret. Oh, saints, live your life like the entire congregation is going to watch your highlight reel on Sunday morning. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. The message of the gospel, it will be revealed for all to witness and all will be accountable. Even though I pulled you aside, Jesus is saying, and explained to you this parable, I'm not giving you inside information here. I need you to shout it loud and proud when I send you out there. And most of you will be killed for it. Right now, this message, it's like a piece of embroidery. I know we have some embroiders in here. One side is full of knots and mishmash and tangle. But I'm turning it over for you. See the finished work. The beautiful truth is concealed in order for it to be manifested. The naughty side of the embroidery is necessary for the finished product. Turn it over. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But Jesus is not giving all the goods at once, is he? That's another part of what this means. Don't we see in other places Jesus tells his disciples that he has many more things to share with them, but they can't bear it right now. You have to be able to receive, to process. There are certain things we don't tell our children because they would not be able to process the information well. To tell them could bring them harm or fear. Imagine if Jesus opened up the spigot on the disciples. They would drown in a second. Yet how important is it that the disciples process this truth? How critical that they understand. Verse 23 shows us. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, we won't rehash this, but Jesus is connecting the two truths here. He's rolling into verse 24 and 25. So I'm going to read them as one. Mark 4, 24 and 25. And he was saying to them, beware what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And more will be given to you. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. 
I laughed when I read this. There's a movement in theological liberalism that says Jesus was a socialist. As you see very clearly here, he is not. That's funny. Well, if we hear the heartbeat of what Jesus is saying here, how many of you are immediately drawn in your mind to the parable of the talents? Yes? The one who buried his talent in the ground, who did not use it, it was taken from him, wasn't it? Let's break this down. He begins, beware what you listen to. Some translations in your lap may say, take care. Take care. Didn't Jesus just get done saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear? Is he just repeating himself in a little different way? Well, yes and no. Yes, he is saying, listen up, pay attention. But this wording, when attached to these verses, goes well beyond that. To say, if you listen, if you accept what I'm telling you now, you will receive more. Do you hear that? Do we see how this meshes with the entire parable all the way back to the parable of the soils? Where Jesus is saying, you need to get this one. Because if you get this one, you'll get more. If you understand this parable, you'll understand them all, right? See the connection? Jesus is also saying to watch out what you're listening to. Only listen to the true word. Again, Spurgeon, he wrote prolifically on this topic. So much, it was hard to choose, but it is good food for us saints. He writes, quote, it does seem to me as if some people said, quote, here is a place of worship. There is sure to be a sermon. Let us go in and hear it. Ah, but all that is preached is not gospel, and it is not all hearing that will be valuable to your souls, especially at this present time. It is incumbent upon Christians to learn how to use the discerning faculty with regard to what is and what is not truth. Would you eat meat indiscriminately without tasting and testing quality? If so, you not, would you not soon be ill? Does a man not take any drug that may happen to be upon the chemist's shelves? Does he not expect great care to be exercised at the doctor's dispensary? Lest he should be taken poison, for he hoped for a salutary medicine. Remember what the Apostle John says. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. And when you do know what the truth is, be not ready to listen to which is contrary to it, or you will rue the day in which you lent your ear to the deceiver. We take heed what we eat, what we drink. Every person who desires to have health does that. And shall we be careless of what we hear? May we not. May hearing error and falsehood engender disease in our spirit and bring our soul into sin and sorrow and eternal ruin? It will. Time is too short for us to be listening to every, every babbler. Spurgeon says, heaven and earth are too important for us to be running any risk concerning our eternal state by giving heed to the speculations of evil men, end quote. Our standard of measure back in our text is referring to our hearing. How well do we listen? How well do we apply? If you do so, you'll be given more. It's the principle of reciprocity. Some in the military remember the adage, use it or lose it. If you had, say, remember a week of leave and you, you didn't use it by the following year, what happened? You lost it. Use what has been given to you or it will be lost. It will flow into the Dead Sea. It's gone. So we must listen well. Do you remember what we taught about ancient listeners? Recall that there were no scriptures, right? Written for them to hold in their hands. When the church at Corinth would get all gathered to hear a new letter from Paul, we better listen 
because that's all we have. If you were a poor listener in the ancient world, you would suffer spiritually. Jesus is talking about how we hear, how we listen. How else do we make room for more? Besides listening, how else? How else do you procure space in your cup for more to be poured in? First is by listening well, yes, that we might be given more. And the second, we give it away. We pour it out. The psalmist says his cup overflows. But one might say, Lord, give me a hole in my cup that it might wash right through. Constant room for more to be poured in. Listen well and give it away. Listen well and give it away. And listen well and give it away. We put the lamp on the lampstand. We shine the light of our Savior that resides in us. And you might as well, saints, because you could no sooner contain the fire in the bones of a man or woman who has truly laid hold of the gospel because it burns within you. If that fire has grown a bit dim lately, it's time for repentance and refreshing. Remove the basket for it's sin. Remove it from under the bed. It's going to burn up anyways if you try to hide it. What measure are you using? Is it a vessel that will receive more? Have you grown in your capacity to receive? Are you at the same place in the Lord that you were a year ago? I pray not. But get quiet before the Lord and take inventory. Take inventory. Have we listened well? Been discerning? Applied it to our lives? And then did we give it away? This is the continual cycle on this side of eternity. The River Jordan was no accident. Neither was the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee. If we will take heed, God will pour into us. If we will increase our capacity for knowing him, he will meet that desire in greater ways than you can imagine. If you will let your light shine, 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 you will reflect the beauty of the Savior. Let the light, the light, dwell in you richly, lifted high on the lampstand. Give it away. Like the Sea of Galilee, you too will be alive. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, Lord, we all are guilty in one way or another, to one extreme or another, of the basket and of the bed. Lord, we ask you would forgive us of that. Lord, we ask for renewed love in our hearts, for those that are around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow church members. Lord, we ask that it would sprout and be fresh like the Sea of Galilee. Lord, you are good to us today. We celebrate that. In Jesus' name, amen.